Welcome to Housing Developments, the international edition. This is Jim Tobin, joined today by my great colleague and friend, Paul Lopez. Hey, Paul, how are you doing? Hey, Jim, how are you doing? Oh, well, it is, uh, it's, it's good to see you. Uh, we are in, in interesting times and so much that we're, we don't, I don't usually have my, uh, my running buddy with me. Uh, Jerry Howard is, is out on assignment, so to speak, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, but Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I mean, DC is, you know, starting to become that beautiful fall location where the leaves are turning. So it's it's just it's lovely to be out here, as you know. Well, Paul, I know you're uh, even you know tip of the spear on uh, on one of the, the hot issues for our members, and that's supply chain. Uh, and just just wondering what you're hearing from Rob Dietz and, uh, and and what what you're seeing about is there any relief coming for the for the members? Yeah, I mean, I think you're. Hearing the same thing from our members, which is basically we were pivoting all from lumber and that kind of microcosm to the broader issue of supply chain in general. You know, it, it's a variety of different materials and different products that are slowing down the, um, the housing sector right now, which obviously, as you know, you know, we're kind of at a deficit in regards to production, and this is not helping at all. So we're just trying to push the message out as, as much as possible. Um, I think we're, we're making inroads there and um, you know, trying to supply our members with all the materials they need to, to push that out. Because as you know, eventually it's all about the local economy and what's happening at the, at the local level. So we, we just wanna make sure that we're giving everyone the, um, you know, the materials that they need to, to make that happen. Yeah, I was just out in South Dakota for the last uh, last few days visiting with our, our builders out there, and and you know, windows are uh, you know it's a thirteen week lead time. Uh, I've I've heard you know the, the housing is so desperate, and you know it's, it's, in South Dakota is really hopping. Uh, certainly in the Black Hills uh, HBA region, uh, you know, we have people who are houses are they just have a, a you know a a preliminary certificate of occupancy, and people are like I just want to move in. I'm I'm ready to go. I mean demand is so high across the country. Uh, and yet the, the supply chain issues remain clogged. That's why we uh, at NHP, we've, we've, been, we've been working with our colleagues in the trucking industry and, and other construction industries and other supply chain industries to try to find ways to, 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 to suggest to the, the Biden administration and to Congress how they can help alleviate some of these constraints, whether it's, it's trucking or ports uh, or, or anything, uh, you know, just what we can do to try to alleviate these issues. Which is a kind of a segue. I mentioned the word ports, uh, which leads me to the infrastructure bill that just passed last week. Uh, it was yeah. a, a big win for the president. Yeah, Congress actually got something done and it looks like something got moved. Uh, I mean, do, do you want to go a little bit through the details and, and tell us how that's going to affect our members? Yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah, so the, the Senate had passed this bipartisan infrastructure bill back in, in August. It, it, it then became a pawn in the larger three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation package that the build back better legislation that, that everybody's heard a lot about. And, and finally, uh, the, the president uh, and the speaker of the house were able to break the impasse uh, between uh, the, the house moderates uh, who wanted the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed and the house progressives, which were essentially holding it hostage until they got a vote on that larger spending package that impasse broke. Uh, interestingly enough, you know Nancy Pelosi lost five votes. Uh, they voted no on that package, which really prevented her from getting to a full majority in the in the in the House. And she needed she needed about a dozen Republicans uh, who had committed to voting for that bill to you know get it over the the, the finish line. But truly bipartisan, 
Uh, yeah. But that's on its way to the president's desk. And, uh, and, and I think for us, that's, that's something that needs to be supported. So, so just a little bit more inside baseball. Do you think those five that defected from the Democratic Party, were they able to do that just because they knew that they had the votes to pass it anyway, and maybe they would have voted for it had Nancy needed them? Or do you think it was truly like a, no, we're, we're going to stick to our guns? Yeah, I, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I th think she she probably could have held uh, you know a couple of them to help out, but but she knew that she had you know a dozen uh, Republicans, the problem solvers, Republican problem solvers caucus folks. Uh, so I think she knew she had that. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, you, usually you give a pass to members of Congress who have tough tough reelections coming up, where you have enough votes, but if they need to vote no for the for the demographics of the district, they're they're given a pass. The, the, the five Democrats, they're in you know, some of the safest, most liberal districts in the country. They didn't, they didn't need a pass, so, uh, so to speak, but I think they just wanted to stand on principle that they, they felt like uh, they were going to get hung out to dry on that larger reconciliation package. So really interesting dynamics right now. Do, do, do you think that there's going to be repercussions for those that um, on the Republican side that, that moved over to a yes? Yeah, there's there's a lot of talk about because President Trump was against the bill, the, the Republican leadership whipped against the bill. So there's been a lot of talk that they're traitors, uh, that they're enabling the, the Biden administration's agenda. You know, I, I think that's unfortunate. I think these are these are good members, members that, number one, support housing and have been, have been some of our biggest champions. Uh, to, to you know, they try to move a, a a bill in a bipartisan manner that will do good for this country. There's no way, no, no two ways about it. Again, NHB supports it, and, and will continue to support those members uh, for for taking you know unfortunately what turned out to be kind of a a stand so to speak. But um, but I, I unfortunately I think the larger politics are at play in this. Uh, infrastructure is always popular back home, and this is this is a good bill. So so let's talk about what's in it for housing. What are some of the things that we liked about it? Why did we uh, why were we for this bill? Well, I think I think it's first and foremost hard infrastructure. Oftentimes, our industry is saddled with the development costs of building out infrastructure at the local level in order to get a project through. Our our hope is that by the federal government injecting money into uh, local infrastructure projects, that alleviates some of that pressure. Uh, number one, number two, people can't move from the houses we build to the places they play and work if they don't have good roads and bridges. Uh, and so I think just infrastructure in general fundamentally is, is something that NHB supports. Uh, and then finally, I think that the, the bill had the potential uh, to, to have some, some serious downsides for us because there was a lot of talk about climate change initially, maybe some tax increases to pay for it. This bill is, is also notable for what it doesn't have, which I think are, you know, there's nothing detrimental to the home building industry. We're going to, you know, as we move forward in the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about that bigger bill because there are issues with that. Uh, but the infrastructure bill is pretty clean. Two things I want to point out. One is we were able to win some concessions uh, from the from the Democrats in, in they wanted to really crank up resiliency and energy codes in this infrastructure bill. We were able to moderate that. There is incentives in there for local governments uh, and, and states to advance their energy codes and up, mod, um, uh, modernize them or update them, but no mandates on what code, no latest published code. So that's a great win for us. Uh, and number two, uh, there's actually a fix from the old Trump tax cuts in there. If you remember going back now four years, 2017, knee deep in negotiating that bill, yeah. uh, there was something called kayak in there, con uh, contributions in aid of construction. Uh, it, it basically allowed uh, privately owned water companies to uh, 
to pass along the cost of water infrastructure uh, to a builder. A builder would put in water infrastructure. They would then transfer that water infrastructure, sewers and pipes and so on, back right. to the utility. The utility had to take that contribution as a taxable as a, as a taxable event. And what they end up doing is they turn around and they charge the builder on the front end. So they're paying for coming and going. Right. We got that fix buried in this bill uh, with our friends uh, on, the, on the Senate in particular, who made that fix for all of our, uh, our our state and locals out there who are fighting this issue, and our developers who are having to pay pay this this extra money. So a, a nice a nice a nice win, kind of under the yeah. radar. One that, that that is an absolute pocketbook issue for our members for the last four years. So so let me ask you because I, I know that you know the Democrats were getting beat up a little bit, and as we started watching to see the sausage being made, but I mean. Was this just truly how it's supposed to work? A lot of compromise, a lot of back and forth. And at the end, everybody got a little bit of something, but nobody got everything they wanted. Yeah, it, this one just has happened, just has played out, uh, you know, publicly. And, and I think has been kind of an embarrassment for the for the Democratic Party in the short term here. I mean, they're, they're, they've got two big signature pieces of legislation. They're really close on them. Uh, they finally got one of them. Yeah, the sausage making gets has to be getting done. I I I think what what the Democrats suffered from was they won the House, they won the Senate, and they won the White House. The sky's the limit. They can do anything they want, and they thought that their their common goals were greater than their individual differences. Turns right. out the other way has happened here. So uh, I, I I do think this paves the way for that that larger bill. It's going to be it's not going to be three and a half trillion dollars. It's going to be closer to two and a half trillion dollars. I still predict that they will get something to the president's desk by the end of the year. Uh, there's too much at stake. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the way it gets done. It's, it's, it's never easy. Um, but, uh, but maybe, maybe there's a little too much hubris uh, after the elections last year. Well, I was going to say, and they took a little bit on the chin last week, right? I mean, it was a little bit of a too little too late to try and, you know, bring up the demand and, you know, rile up their base because obviously um, they got, they got it in the chin at the polls. Yeah, they, uh, Virginia, uh, Jerry and I talked about on our last uh, podcast, uh, Jerry uh, boldly struck out, and I'll give him credit. He picked Glenn Youngkin to win that Virginia race. I was a little bit more uh, hesitant. Uh, it, sure, it certainly was close, but but the Republican Glenn Youngkin uh, reclaimed Virginia for the Republicans. They pretty much ran the table at the top end of the ticket um, and, and then and then took back the House of, of Delegates here in Virginia. So that's a that's a big that's a big night. Layer on that the incredibly close race for governor uh, in uh, in New Jersey with with Phil Murphy barely hanging on. I think it's still within about one percentage point uh, in, a, in a, as deep blue a state as you're going to find in America in New Jersey. And uh, so there's there's real pause for the for the Democrats out there about whether they're and of course everybody's reading the tea leaves district. The, the the progressives think we're not being progressive enough. Uh, we have to go further. Moderates, of course, saying, whoa, 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 we're going way too far. Let's rein it in. So the, the Democrats still have some uh, some soul searching to do about a national message, uh, and especially going into the midterms in 2022, when all of Congress uh, and the House of Representatives up for for uh, for for reelection. Yeah, so hopefully in a couple of weeks, um, we'll have a couple of political insiders to come in and talk about what their views of the, uh, the midterms are. So that yeah. should be really interesting. Well, indeed. But all right, so let, 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 let's let's shift a little bit now to the international stage because President Biden was in fact in Scotland last week, and you teased a little bit of why this is the international edition of housing developments. So, 
he went to Scotland. Um, they're still meeting as we're, you know, as we're recording this. So why am I here rather than uh, Mr. Jerry Howard? Well, as, as you said, the, the big uh, COP26 is, is taking place over in Scotland right now. That's the climate change conference. Uh, and you know, my, our partner in crime, Jerry Howard, and our immediate past chair, Greg Ugaldi, are over in Scotland as we speak, uh, participating in some of those, uh, some of those meetings. Uh, it was given that while this is international and focused, U.S. is a is a large is a uh, outsized driver of, of climate change uh, policies in the world. Like President Biden said, we know we need to lead by example. Uh, so that means that whatever comes out of Scotland, that's gonna that's gonna migrate uh, to our shores. And I think it's really important for us as a building industry because a, a portion of this conference is focused on the built environment and focused on commercial and residential buildings. So. Uh, having Jerry and Greg over there, you know, representing the U.S., uh, listening to what's being said, uh, it helps prepare our members uh, for what uh, what may be coming our way when it comes to climate change, resiliency, and energy efficiency. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like there's been a lot of stuff floating out there, um, a, a lot of big talk, very, you know, very few concrete, um, you know, decisions that are being made in regards to what you know, what's going to translate into real policy, not only here in the United States, but but across the globe. But I mean, we, we, we had to take it seriously. And with that, you know, Jerry and Greg felt the need to go out there. There is a, a housing portion of the agenda that we felt that we needed to be a part of. Yeah. And, um, you know, almost, you know, within a matter of weeks, we, we made this happen. So they're actually there to represent the interests of the home builders. So yeah, no, it's, it's it's a good it's 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 good that they're over there and uh, and and uh, and and participating. So um, I, I know Jerry and Greg are gonna are are gonna you know, join us from Scotland and uh, and to talk about what they hope to accomplish this week and 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 what uh, what the the vibe is on the ground in uh, in in Glasgow. So uh, with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick it over to uh, to Jerry and, and and Greg and fellas, take it away. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Paul. So, Greg, we find ourselves here in uh, merry old England, getting ready to head north uh, to Scotland to the latter part of the climate change conference. What do you think? Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of excitement, and uh, we look forward to representing our industry there. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's funny, and the irony doesn't escape me, that we're in one of the most um, housing expensive cities in the world, and they're talking about getting to uh, net carbon zero by 2050. How do they think they're going to address housing affordability? Or well, I guess that's going to be up to you and me to tell them about it. That's right. And we all realize that it is an industry we have to face these facts and we have to deal with them. But the problem is that we can't do it at the expense of housing affordability. We have to keep reasonableness in the equation. We have to look at science and we would like to have steps taken that are based in facts and reasonableness. And that's what we really are the voice of. When you get caught up in the excitement, oftentimes these things are overlooked. I agree. And, I, and I'll tell you, there has to be some understanding of what the market can bear cost-wise and what the market will bear in terms of consumer preference. And I don't think that these people at this climate uh, change conference are thinking in those terms at all. That, that, that's right. And we need a balanced approach at the end of the day. And, and I think that it also uh, is important 
to leaders globally to understand that it is existing stock that is causing the problem significantly more than newly built stock. And so global leaders need to look at retrofitting. That's important. And and I think that when we get there, we'll be waving our climate change banners just like everybody else. But uh, just like back home, whenever we're dealing with the code process, when we're dealing with zoning regulations and the land use uh, rules across the country, these are always the kinds of things that we look at and we look to. And at the end of the day, you have to focus on housing affordability. While climate change is critically important, nobody's denying that, but it has to be done so that we don't really damage the housing market more than all the other uh, the, the headwinds that we face, as we say. Exactly. And so we're off to Scotland, where we'll be in the, uh, the housing and the built environment uh, elements of the conference. And I guess we'll close by me paraphrasing from the great movie about Scotland called Braveheart with Mel Gibson, <laughs> right. where I think he rallied the troops by saying they can take our lives but they'll never take away our freedom, our freedom. of housing choices. Yeah. <laughs> Back to good. you, Jim. Back to you, Paul. Okay, that was, that was a really interesting um, segment. Um, thank you, Jerry and, and Greg. We, we really appreciate that um, the reporting from uh, Scotland. It, it was great to hear what they're, what they're up to. And again, our goals for this week. And, um, and again, great for them to jump on a plane and be able to do this. I think it's, uh, it's, it's helpful for the industry. So, with that, Paul, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for joining this week. Always a pleasure. Uh, look forward to uh, to our next edition. But until then, uh, for Housing Developments International Edition, I'm Jim Tobin, and I'm Paul Lopez. Thanks. See you.